Hi and welcome to Authorise, the podcast where writers speak. My name's Kevin Hillier and with thanks, of course, as always, to our good friends at CSCG. Now, CSCG Finance Group, uh, the people you should talk to if you're looking at doing all, well, anything in the in the world of finance to do with your finances, they can help you out. They're as near to you as picking up the telephone and calling them and having a chat on double nine seven four eight triple three or jumping on their website, cscg.com.au. Now, whether it's superannuation, whether it's a lender, whether it's borrowing, whether you want to get a, a better understanding of your financial situation and where you are and where all those things go and where they're heading, uh, they can help you out with all that, uh, whether you're business or private or whatever it is. Give them a call, uh, jump on the website and uh, check out our good friends at CSCG. Uh, they will look after you. They're terrific people. Now, I want to read you uh, a, a little bit of the screed about this book before we talk to our author today because you'll get an indication of, uh, of what this is all about and, and uh, just how important uh, a topic this is and how important a book this is. The book is called Diagnosis Normal. It's by Emma A. Jane. Now, Emma Jane is formerly, uh, formerly known to everyone as Emma Tom, a very well-known television personality. Let me read you this. She's lived a thousand colourful lives. She's been an award-winning journalist, a TV presenter, played in a successful band, married a rock star she hardly knew, had a baby, written books, had cancer, ditched journalism for academia and completed a PhD. But all the while, she was struggling with her mental health sparked by the early trauma of childhood sexual abuse. That's confronting as someone's life and what they've lived and how they've gone about it and uh, and where they are now. And to sit down and then write a book about all those things uh, spinning through your head um, and a, a diagnosis of autism and dealing with a, a pandemic for two years, put all that together. And uh, that's what uh, Emma Jane has been dealing with and dealt with in her time. And I'm, uh, I'm happy to say that uh, she's found some time to have a talk to us about this book, Diagnosis Normal. So let's get stuck into it on this edition of the Authorised Podcast. Congratulations on the book, or is congratulations the right word? Uh, yeah, it's, it, it was a really difficult book to write. Um, and, yeah, look, I guess congratulations are probably in order because for anyone that sort of dealt with a really stigmatised um, occurrences like sort of sexual violence and child sexual abuse. It is a big deal to actually tell the story. Which which begs the the next question is obviously: Did you feel you needed to write the book, or were you almost uh, it was almost a, uh, something pushing you to write it that was within you that it just had to be done? Uh, look, it was a very it was a it was a real slow burn. Um, like many people who abuse as kids, so I didn't say anything about it to anyone for a very long time. So I didn't tell anyone that it happened until I was in my mid-20s. Um, and then I slowly started telling um, family and friends. Um, and then I, I really gave some thought, and a lot of um, perpetrators sort of, threaten kids about all the terrible things that will happen if they tell because they, they want kids to keep quiet. Mm. And so it got to a point where I realised I was still terrified about speaking out. Um, and 
you know, I guess I did a sort of mental and emotional gear shift where I thought, hold on a second, uh, this is actually my story to tell. And if I want to tell it, I will. And so it was certainly um, not a pleasant um, experience to get it down and it wasn't at all cathartic while I was doing it. But once I'd finished, I had a real sense of relief. A lot of people do too. I'm sure that's been a question that's been asked to you. Was it a cathartic experience? But was it more, more like a, a reliving a horror movie again and again and again? It was when I was writing it. Yeah. Um, the way that, I mean, there's a lot of, because I'm an academic, the book sort of combines my personal experience with um, a synthesis of a huge amount of academic research that's been done in this area. And one of the things that, that happens, um, I mean, the memories that you lay down um, in a situation of trauma are different than the way that we would encode memories in a sort of average day. Um, and so one of the reasons that it was so awful to have to sort of revisit this in my mind and remember things and write it all down is that um, it was incredibly triggering and Triggering gets used, I would say overused um, in social media, but in the PTSD sense, in the clinical sense, it's not just remembering something awful and feeling awful, but you can have a, almost a, a full body experience, um, a full body sense that you're back there. Yeah. And so it really, it's not reliving it just in an intellectual sense. Um, it can feel you can have the same sense of fear. You can be covered in, you know, perspiration. You can be shaking. Um, so it was very, very difficult to write. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, at the start of this book you talk about the fact that it is a work of nonfiction. It's your recollections. It's it's your reality. Did you did you grapple with that, with what was what was your reality and what was reality? Did, did those lines blur a lot for yeah, you? Yeah, I did. I did, except that I think everyone should be battling with the nature of reality because um, what the science is telling us is that what we perceive, what we see and hear and, and remember, it's not like a literal representation of what's going on. Um, and so my recollection of an event, um, and you know, we see this in the courts with eyewitness accounts, people remember seeing completely different things. So, yeah, I did... Um, I did sort of worry a lot about, you know, did I have a perfect recollection of everything that happened and would everyone else remember it the same way? And then, you know, fortunately because I'm a complete um, book nerd and I'd read all this interesting um, stuff from sort of basically from cutting edge uh, theoretical um, physics around the fact that we don't actually know what reality is. Mm. We don't know if we're perceiving the same things. And so what I did, and I, I put a big caveat at the beginning of the book, is I've told a story that is, um, you know, represents the best for, you know, the, the, the best form of truth telling that any of us can hope to achieve. You know, we write down everything that we can remember and acknowledging that memories are fallible. People remember things differently. Um, we don't have an, you know, like an encyclopedic uh, reference of everything that ha happened to us on every single day of our lives. So, um, yeah, it was something that concerned me a bit at first, but then I've made clear that this is this is my my recollection. This is my account of my life. 
I, uh, I think this should be included in all books that are non-fiction. Uh, the, the wording that you used is perfect. The most earnest form of truth-telling a human can hope for. I reckon that should be at the front of every book that is a non-fiction book. Oh, yeah, me too. You know, I, I, in academic, my academic work, work, I'm quite fixated on this idea of what it means to be, uh, we we're fallible as people, you know, we, no matter how um, beautifully we and meticulously we conduct our experiments, you know, say as scientists or academics, we're always fallible. And so what I think is interesting is the notion of what does it mean to be responsibly fallible? We know we're fallible. How do we be responsible about that fact? So that's what I try and do in all my work. Emma, people who pick this book up, Diagnosis Normal, on the cover they will see that you've lived with abuse, undiagnosed autism, um, uh, that you, you know, the, what, what COVID's done to you uh, is all in this book. Who do you expect to pick this book up and what do you expect them to get out of this book? Uh, look, I... Sorry, there's a plane going over. Can you hear it? No, actually. <laughs> oh, okay. I won't mention it again. Um, <laughs> strike that from the record. <laughs> Look, I hope that – I just know that from my personal experience, when I've heard people talk or read people uh, read books by people who've gone through things that I've gone through, I find it reassuring and validating um, even if they don't go through exactly what I went through. So I'm hoping that people who may, people who struggle with mental health issues, um, people who live with um, with autism, people who found COVID a little bit on the difficult side yeah. will get a sense of sort of, I guess, reassurance and validation that they're not the only ones. But also this book is... Um, and I've tried to, you know, translate all that horrible jargon that we academics tend to use. Um, and so the other thing I hope they get out of it is some perspective in terms of what the academic research is telling us. So it's not just, oh, I'm not the only one, there's other people going through this. But the ability to gain some really, um, what I think are powerful and at times empowering insights from the research that's out there that a lot of people may not be able to access either because they don't have um, access to the the journals because they're behind paywalls or their language is too specialised to be able to understand what they're saying. Yeah. You can get lost in that, can't you, in that uh, that kind of... You can get lost. You know, and I've also got a really sort of dark and often inappropriate sense of humour. So the book despite all of the sort of bleak terrain that it covers, um, I have always used humour as a coping mechanism and that's sort of um, throughout the book as well. So it's, you know, know, fingers crossed that um, it also gives people a bit of a laugh. But that's that, you're right. It's a coping mechanism, isn't it? Because it, it deflects anyone going any deeper into into what you're actually trying to say because you're turning it into a gag. Well, I don't think that it. I actually disagree with that. Like, I think that humour can be a way of of not deflecting difficult information, but being able to sit with it more comfortably. Um, certainly, you know, in my my, I mean, it it depends. You know, there's a there's a you can make nasty jokes about people that have mental illness, yeah. or you can make jokes that we all go, oh my god, I know exactly what that's like. You know, 
Um, so, but, but generally, I, if, if you make a joke about it, though, that may, then it it automatically for the person that you're making the joke to means that you're okay with it. It's fine. So they don't delve any deeper into into what the underlying problem might be. Uh, no, I think that humour is an invitation to delve deeper, but to feel that you can do it without completely moving your shit. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> you know, because this is really dark terrain. Like, oh yeah. Um, I had a beautiful team that I worked with at Penguin. Um, you know, the, the the publisher and the editor that I worked with were amazing, but there were a few sort of very dark jokes um, that related to suicide, which are just you know, not supposed to tell those jokes. And um, I pulled back on those. Um, it wasn't making light of suicide. It was making sort of, I guess, wry jokes about people like me that do think about or have thought about suicide a lot. Um, and so I personally feel I'm entitled to make those kinds of jokes, but we did pull back on some of those ones. Yeah. So I actually think that humour doesn't necessarily deflect but really can be an entry point into really into terrain that is so difficult that we might struggle to go there without a bit of help in the form of some gentle or whimsical humour. When you've read uh, people talking about their story and, and it's it's touched a nerve with you and now people will pick your book up and, and it'll touch a nerve with them, where did you go after that? What was the next step for you? And what do you expect the next step to be for people who read this book and have a similar reaction? Um, I hope that – my hope is – I mean, with these types of issues, so if you're dealing with the legacies of sexual abuse or you've got, uh, you know, uh, a neurodivergent condition like autism or you've got like a chronic mental illness, there's not really – you know, you may have better days than others but often these are things that you, you'll carry for your life and you'll be managing for your life, your whole life. So my hope is that um, it might help people on those darker days, um, you know, in terms of where to next. Maybe um, some of the information that I've provided, um, you know, it would be amazing if it actually made people feel that they were entitled to go and seek some support and help and knowing that that support and help is out there. Uh, for those people that um, perhaps, and I've actually, with some of the people who've read it already, a lot of the feedback that I've been getting have been from people who have loved ones that, ha- that deal with these issues and it it really, um, it they said that it made them feel a bit, more compassionate towards um, the situation that their loved ones were in because those of us that have these issues can be really difficult at times. Mm. We can really test people's patience. And, well, and it's also not a, an easy thing to sit down and have a chat to someone about, is it? It's not easy. It's not easy for either party. Um, it's not easy to disclose. Um, and, you know, it's not easy to hear. Does does this did this book allow you to have that chat with yourself rather than another person? Is that is that? And I know that's not the, that's sort of part of the cathartic experience and all that. But um, uh, is that what is that what some of this is in some way? Um, look, yeah, look, some of it in some ways. Like I, I was very confused for a lot of my life about why I was the way I was, 
You know, why was I, did I, you know, in some ways my life looked absolutely perfect. Why was I so anxious and depressed? Why was I not better? You know, why wasn't I, you know, coping well in social situations? Why could, you know, did I keep dwelling on things that had happened in my childhood? You know, which did one cause the other? How did they sort of all influence each other? How many other people, you know, were in this situation? Was it just me? So the book is was initially uh, an attempt to try and understand um, why I was the way I was. Yeah. Um, I think the young people would just, you know, say it simply as WTF. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, it was me just wondering, WTF, yeah. about myself. Yeah. Um, the word normal is a, uh, a much overused, uh, a much uh, – it's just a word that I'm, uh, I'm finding I'm becoming more uncomfortable with as a word in, in our language and our, uh, our, our assessments of, of things. And we talk about a new normal with COVID. We talk about, uh, you know, all sorts of different – normal seems to be a word for me that I find – I'm starting to find that I don't like a hell of a lot. Are you comfortable with that as a word and that as a uh, – Well, I'm comfortable with that as a word because I love defining myself as not normal. Yes. <laughs> so if, the, if normal goes, then how am I going to define myself? Um, I, I personally think that normal is – the idea of normal is incredibly overrated. Yep. Um, it's a very elastic term, right? Like, what what is normal? What even is normal anyway? Um, but there's certainly, I don't know. For me, the type of bullying that I've experienced over my life has tended to be along the lines of, you know, you, you, there's something not normal about you. You're very weird. You're very strange. Why are you so odd? So um, I've personally. You know, I identify, I, I see myself as a bit of a sweet weirdo, and I really like being a sweet weirdo. Um, and so I, I agree. I, I think this, the, the word normal is overused and it's certainly overrated. Are you seeing a change? Can you feel a change in the fact that we are now embracing the, that kind of diversity? You talk about neurodiversity. or We're starting to em- not only embrace it, but we're starting to um, acknowledge it and, and accept that it's it's actually a good thing? Well, yeah. I mean, you, autism's having a bit of a cultural moment, right? Like it's like yes, it every is. other... Every other series that pops up on my, you know, Netflix is another sort of heartwarming, um, you know, comedy about funny autistic people. Um, You know, and I wonder, you know, I think about some of the other mental health issues that people suffer from, like, for instance, borderline personality disorder that are still very, very stigmatized. And so, you know, it's great that there's this shift, um, but I don't think it. Um, I think there's still a lot of uh, different issues, different mental health issues, different issues relating to neurodivergence that haven't really made it into that sort of cultural moment in the sun. Um, and I know that there's a lot of lip service paid to, you know, acceptance um, of diversity and promotion of diversity. But for me, I, you know, m- 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 much of the, the average workplace is set up for people that are not neurodivergent. Um, You know, it's very hard to get quiet places, to get away from 
different kinds of things that we find very difficult to deal with, like, you know, certain types of lighting, certain types of ambient sounds, you know, having to talk to people in groups. Um, and so while there is definitely at the level of culture um, some shifts happening, I don't think that, that they have yet filtered down to, um, you know, our day-to-day lived realities where it really counts. Yeah. And because they're invisible disabilities, um, you know, we have to sort of go out of our way to, to tell people about them and ask for what we need to be, you know, the supports that we need to function. Like, um, you know, I think I think we need the sort of neuro neurodiversity equivalent of wheelchair ramps, you know, in, in all workplaces. Um, and I don't think, you know, we're a- anywhere close to seeing that sort of thing happening. It's invisible if you don't want to see it, but it's there if you do want to see it. Is are books like yours uh, the ability to bring that out into the open? Yeah, look, it's definitely uh, it's my, the book is definitely an attempt to break the toxic silences that that still remain around um, mental health and sexual violence, and in particular child sex abuse. Um, you know, it's not. It's not something. It's not something that it may look like it's in conversation a lot again because of what we're seeing in the media. But when it comes to daily life, these are still terribly difficult conversations to have. Um, and you know, you can get very, very unfortunate responses. Um, so yeah, my book is an attempt to add a voice um, to to help you know, raise awareness and stimulate conversation. Is there is there more to tell about your story, Emma? Um, there's things that I had to leave out for legal reasons. Yeah. Um, you know I'm doing an a, I'm doing an event tomorrow with Grace Kane um, at my university and you know, if we look at her situation where, you know, she was gagged um, from speaking about the abuse that she sustained um, and was able to overturn that and be able to speak, in my situation, the person that abused me um, hasn't been before a court. And so if I was to identify him, uh Oh, you know, I might find myself in a position where I was sued for defamation and, I, and the onus was on me to prove yeah. that it happened. So um, there's all sorts of silencing mechanisms that are still in place. So, so there are, you know, I had to work with a lawyer and be very, very careful about what I said in my book. So there, there, is, there is a lot of information I had to put to one side. Yeah which must have been galling for someone like you who does like to speak the truth and likes to tell the story um, in its entirety that you couldn't do that because of those legal ramifications. It was extremely galling because, in a way, it's protecting an abuser. It's, a, you know, yeah. protecting a pedophile. But I reminded myself that ultimately I'm protecting myself um, yeah. because having lived with, with this for my whole life, I, I don't ever want to be in a room with that person again, ever, let alone a courtroom. Yeah. So I, yeah, I remind myself that that's self-protection and not pedophile protection. So what's next on the uh, on the agenda for you? 
Um, Kevin, I my day job is as an academic, yep. and so the area that I research, I look at the the social and ethical impacts of emerging technologies, and I'm just sort of uh, at the very early stages of a project that looks at um, the way you know governance, so sort of you know regulations within the metaverse, within mixed realities, like. You know, you may have seen a few weeks back, um, there was a story about a woman who was, you know, virtually gang raped in Facebook's new VR world. Um, That's where I'm turning my attention. Does uh, does social media uh, and and what it's done and and how it's changed the way people now uh, react to all different sorts of things or are able to react and able to have their opinion and their thoughts there, when you when you wrote the book, did you think I'm going to get an enormous amount of uh, negative, uh, horrible trolling and stuff going on? Did did that ever enter your head, and, and does that worry? Oh, you? it entered, entered entered my head every single day. I was working on it. Yeah. Um, I, I look at uh, you know cyber violence, hate speech online, um, because partly because when I was working as a journalist and when you know way back when dinosaurs were on the earth and <laughs> when email when email was invented and I put my email at the bottom of my column for the Australian, uh, I was just inundated with death threats and rape threats. That was the late nineties. Yep. So I've always got a massive volume of that type of material because of the type of work I do. Um, a few years ago, however, I but I stayed on social media. Um a few years ago, however, I closed down all my social media accounts except for LinkedIn, which I need for my work. Um, I won't go near social media anymore. Yeah. So they may well, and I asked my friends not to tell me what if people are sort of, you know, bad mouthing me or, or you know, posting nasty comments. You know, to me that that's sort of a type of of emotional and mental pollution and that I don't want to be concerned with anymore. Yeah. Yeah. No, good on you. I wish more people would do that. Like, you know, there's this idea that we need to be on social media. It's like, well, really? You know, <laughs> like, because you look at companies like Facebook. Um, I mean, the thing that I, the reason I decided to withdraw from all social media wasn't because of the hate mail. It was because of, um, I don't want to be in any way supporting Facebook's business model, Facebook's profoundly unethical attention harvesting business model. And I really wish more people would sort of engage in the equivalent, the social media equivalent of consumer boycotts of those big tech um, companies until we construct social media platforms that are sort of more driven by our values, I guess. Yep. rather than what's good for Mark Zuckerberg's bank account balance. <laughs> uh, it always comes back to the money, let's be honest. It's not the real world, there's no doubt about that, but it has enormous ramifications in the real world, unfortunately. Yeah, I think it is, but except that I don't. I think it is the real world. I mean, we our lives offline and our lives that are, you know, dig, you know digital or mediated by network technology, I think they're so interconnected now that there's not an, a real world and a cyber world or a virtual world. It's all inextricably combined. And with these, the rise of these sorts of mixed realities, 
um, you know, VR and so on, it's just going to become even more like that. So, you know, I feel very strongly about taking a more proactive role about the way these huge platforms are designed and what we want them to do so that we don't end up in the sort of situation that we find ourselves today with, say, again, with Facebook. Yeah. But, you know, not just Facebook, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. I mean, TikTok is a bit of a different case because of the way that it's, you know, run by, you know, the, the different political situation in China. But you get the point. Yeah. Yeah, no, I get the point. Alison, thanks for having a chat. Really appreciate uh, your time. Uh, the bo- I won't. Uh, I mean, I said congratulations at the start. No, I'm still not sure that that's the right word. But uh, but well yes. done, well done on getting the book out there and uh, and telling the story because it's obviously one that uh, definitely needs to be told and needs to be heard by people. Thank you, Kevin, and thanks for having me on. A most interesting human being and a most interesting book and a very confronting book. Uh, You'll go through a lot of emotions if you read this book. I'll I'll guarantee you that. Uh, Diagnosis Normal, it is out now. It's uh, out through Penguin, so uh, it's uh, in all good bookshops. Uh, You'll see it, a a quite extraordinary uh, story and a a quite extraordinary uh, life that, uh, that Emma Jane has lived and is living. Thank goodness. All right, that's uh, that's our podcast for this time around. Don't forget, jump on and have a look back at some of the previous episodes of our podcast. We've talked to all sorts of authors, uh, fiction, uh, history, uh, sport, you name it. Uh, we've we've covered them all. Music, uh, they've all been in there. Uh, kids' books, everything is is. Uh, uh, has been on the agenda and will continue to be on the agenda for Authorised. Thanks to our very good friends, our podcast partners, CSCG. Jump on the website, see the services they have to offer and then give them a call. Double nine seven four eight triple three. It's a phone call you will not regret making and it will make your finance uh, situation a hell of a lot better. Double nine seven four eight triple three cscg.com.au. My thanks once again to Emma Jane for talking to us uh, so candidly and frankly and honestly about her new book, Diagnosis Normal. Until the next time, I'm Kevin Hillier. Take care of yourself.